Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Changing world. Piki mai kake mai, and a very big welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance ho. It's great to be back with a whole lot of new stories for 2019. Later on tonight, I'll catch you up with what's been happening in the kakapo world, and I can tell you, it's a lot. But first, fish ear bones. Fish ear bones may be small. But when I visit Niwa scientist Emma Egan in her Hamilton lab, she tells me they're a treasure trove of information and a surprisingly detailed record of a fish's life. I study fish ear bones, also called otoliths. That's the scientific name for them. And otoliths are calcium carbonate structures that are located in the inner ear of fish. So we don't have them. We don't have otoliths, but we have ears. (laughs) And they kind of actually have a similar function because ear bones help fish to um, maintain balance and to detect vibrations around them. So they kind of help them with their movement. But there's actually a lot more information contained in these otoliths or calcium carbonate structures. All fish have them? Yes, all fish have them, and they come in all different shapes and all different sizes, and they're actually really beautiful. Um, people make jewellery out of them, they attach them to earrings and necklaces. They're kind of white, little pearly structures, quite attractive. Have you got one you can show me? I do, yeah, and I have a couple of species here I can show you. Those are ear bones that are all stuck down that sheet of yeah. paper. so these are longfin eels, actually, from Lake Hawia, and they're all female eels. So when we extract the ear bones um, to keep them safe until we go and analyse them, they get stuck to a black piece of paper... So you can see here they have, you know, all quite different shapes and sizes and there's some serrations around here. And so they they're about, what, three mils long? Three mils maximum length. Maximum, yeah, yeah. yeah. But we, normally they're about one millimetre. And very irregularly shaped, but they're all eel ones. These are all eels, yeah. And I'll just show you um, some flounder. So flounder are actually very different structure altogether. Ah, describe these ones to me. Very serrated edges, and you can actually see a very distinct white core. And that transparent ring that you can see is most likely the first um, annual ring, so the first year of growth in a flounder. They look almost like miniature limpet shells. Yeah, they do look like limpets, yeah, yeah. But they're quite serrated, you can see in the edges. And as Mm. a fish grows, the structure of the otolith becomes more complex. And they lay down calcium carbonate every day onto this structure. And it's because of this, the daily deposition onto the otolith, we can extract information about a fish 
every single day of its life. So it's almost creating rings like a tree ring? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the technique and the method I'm exploiting for eels. So basically, if you cut an eel ear bone in half and burn it to enhance the annual rings, they have a similar structure to what you see in trees, where you can see a ring laid down every single year. And burning it just makes those rings yeah, stand out. Yeah, it enhances it, because the annual ring um, represents a period of slow growth in a fish, and it has a different chemical structure to the oatlet material that is deposited in the summer. So the annual ring is also called a winter ring sometimes, and it turns brown or black by burning because it has a different chemical structure, and that, that's what we use to help us and guide us in the ageing process and to be able to see the rings a little bit clearer. So these data sheets you've got here look quite old. So where are they from? Some of these um, are from one of the first studies on eels in New Zealand on ageing. And they were done by a man called Peter Todd. And he used to work for um, Niwa's predecessors. And these ear bones were collected in 1975, 76, 77. So some of these fish are up to 20 years of age. So basically by examining these old ear bones we have a record of growth in Lake Ellesmere back to the 1950s so what I'm trying to do is to understand how eel growth rates have changed through time in um, Te Waihora, Lake Ellesmere and if there is an effect of climate change on eel growth rates so I've generated a time series basically of 50 years almost which is probably one of the longest time series of freshwater fish growth in New Zealand so how do you make a time series? You've got all these individual otoliths. Yeah. So basically you start from the outer edge of the ear bone and you count every single annual ring. Just like tree rings? Just like tree rings. And you know the year you caught the fish. So you can assign every ring a year at formation. So for example, these eels were caught in the white hockey in 2004. And I know that the last ring was formed in 2003, 2002, 2001. And you work progressively into the central part of the ear bone. So for every individual fish, you basically are creating a time series of growth. And then you stitch all of your fish together that have shared growth in the same year to make an even longer time series. So for Lake Ellesmere, like I said, it dates from 1952 to 2013. And then what we do is we extract climate information. So information on El Nino's and La Nina cycles, on the southern annular mode, um, temperature, the interdecadal Pacific oscillation. And we use those environmental variables and statistically model eel growth rates with those variables to see if they're responding to climate change. So it might be that in a good year... That the growth ring is wider because yeah. they had a good year. Next year might be colder, it's yeah. narrower. Does yeah. it work like that? Exactly, and the good growth year might correspond to an extreme event like an El Nino or a La Nina or a regime shift in the interdecadal Pacific Oscillation. Wind, if you think back in 1968, there was the Wahine storm in Lake Ellesmere, which resulted in the macrophytes being torn out of the system, and the lake actually changed state and it was very windy as a result of that storm. And that is a very um, distinct disturbance event in the storm. And what's really amazing is that by reconstructing growth from all of these old collections, 
we can pick up some signatures of the effects of that storm on eel growth rates. And we can see basically from our statistical models that they are responding to how variable wind was over that time period, which we think represents the Wahine storm. And likewise, we also have picked up signatures of El Nino events in 97-98. There was an extreme El Nino event that year, and actually that resulted in lower growth rates of shortfin eels in Lake Ellesmere. And I guess we don't know how eels are responding um, throughout the country. This is just one location that we have had an ability to collect data from multiple people. There's a lot of NEWA scientists that have worked on eels, like Don Jellyman, Shan Crow. Mike Benchies, Peter Todd. So I've just kind of collected all of those ear bones and yeah, reused them. So we don't know how short fins or long fins are responding in different parts of the country. Of course, climate change has different effects depending on whether you're in the north or south island, west or east coast, rivers, lakes, you know, that kind of a thing. So this is kind of just the first step towards getting to grips about how eels might be responding to climate change. So you can plug in the trends that you're seeing from the past into future models of what might happen with them? Yes, potentially. We do need to get a much better understanding of what affects annual growth rate in eels. Of course, they are part of a fishery in New Zealand and fishing can have impacts on eel growth rates. That is something we haven't analysed yet in our model, how fishing activity might change eel growth rates in conjunction with environmental change due to climate change. So I guess we need to get a better handle of all of the impacts on eel growth rates before we can start to make projections into the future. But it's definitely possible. They do do it for marine species where they have a much kind of in-depth understanding of their biology and ecology. But for now, we're just we're kind of taking baby steps at the minute. You know, this is one of the first studies of uh, this extent, I guess, in New Zealand and We're just kind of processing it and, you know, deciding where to go next. Tell me a bit more about the ring that's right in the middle, the first one they lay down. So that actual, the dark centre in the eel ear bone represents its larval phase when it was at sea. So So they breed somewhere. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) in the Western Pacific Ocean. We're not 100% sure yet. My colleagues actually at NIWA are going to be tagging migrating long fin eels with pop-up satellite tags. And, of course, we have never really been able to locate where long fins spawn. Um, Don Jellyman is the scientist that has worked a lot on this aspect of um, the eel life cycle. And it's you know, considered the holy grail among eel scientists in the world because a lot of other eels, we have managed to find their spawning grounds, but for the long fin eel, it's still the biggest question. So... Yeah, a group of my colleagues next April are tagging long fins to try and find where they spawn. So that will give us a little bit more information about um, where exactly in the Pacific Ocean they might spawn. For short fin eels, we have a little bit of a better understanding. Through tagging studies and also um, some Japanese colleagues have actually found the short fin larvae in the Western Pacific Ocean, newly newly hatched ones. And the larvae are called uh, leptocephali. So we do have some kind of an idea of where they might be located. Um, But we're not sure if long fins and short fins have different spawning grounds. Do they change over the spawning season? Do they change between years? So those are all really big questions um, that we need to answer. And actually, there's a lot of 
information contained in the core of um, the otolus that represents the larval phase. So during that phase, there's daily ring deposition, not annual. So you can basically get an insight into the daily life of a larval eel as it's transported from its spawning grounds in the Western Pacific to New Zealand's coastline. And also, as they are moving through the marine environment, they're picking up the chemical signature of that marine environment, and that's all recorded in this tiny, tiny earbone. And we actually have just uh, launched a project where we're hoping to investigate the larval life of eels, of both short fin and long fin, looking at the daily rings, looking at the chemistry. Um, we're also going to be looking at the isotopes of the tissue of glass eels as they come into New Zealand and using a technique called compound-specific stable isotopes of amino acids. Quite fancy, bit of a mouthful. <laughs> but it's a very novel way that we're hoping um, can help us to assign their potential origins and where they came from in their spawning area. And it's quite nice because it complements some of the tagging work. The tagging work is looking at where the adults go to in the Western Pacific. And our question is, where do the babies come from? So it's actually really nice um, complementary research that we're doing. There has been some work um, done on, on the daily rings of the glass eels and a little bit of work on the chemistry, um, again by Don Jellyman and co. But this time we are trying to get a much more holistic understanding by using the chemistry over its entire life as well as the fancy stable isotope analysis, as well as the microstructure from different parts of the country that are influenced by different oceanographic um, currents to try and answer the questions, are they coming from different spawning grounds and are they using different dispersal currents and dispersal routes to come to New Zealand? There's so much information in the earbone. It's that they're like diaries, you know, they're really, really fascinating structures. They're a treasure trove, really, and... By using multiple techniques together, you can start to get a much kind of bigger and holistic picture and understanding. And look, if we don't answer these questions, I'm not going to shed tears because it's all new information. It's all new science. And it's just going to, you know, progress and advance the field even more and give us a better understanding of the larval marine life of our um, short fin and long fin eels. And maybe help solve part of the mystery. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> and also, it's really important to research from the perspective that where their spawning grounds are located is an area that is rapidly undergoing the effects of climate change and sea level rise and ocean acidification and increasing temperatures. So in order to, for us to get a better understanding of the recruitment of glass eels to New Zealand, we need to start to understand the larval marine phase. And, you know, this is very much like our white bait, where they also spend a part of their life in the sea. And it's a very difficult um, period in their life to study. They're little tiny fish out in a big, massive ocean. And that's why the, you can't tag them, because they're tiny. You know, it's very expensive to do a research cruise, and you might not be very successful at finding them. So that's why the ear bone is, is like the most critical tool available to us to help understand the larval phase of our freshwater fish. It's amazing how something so small 
can tell us so much. It can tell us growth rates on a daily basis, on an annual basis, on a seasonal basis. It can tell us their spawning dates. It can tell us their age. It can tell us there actually are marks on the ear bone that represent feeding. And when they transition from a larvae into an adult, these are check marks, so very distinct bands on the ear bone if they experience stress. Uh, all of the chemical information that is recorded in them, so um, information about the diet, so carbon and nitrogen that's recorded in the ear bone. Um, different water masses have different chemical signatures, so it can help us to figure out what water mass um, they might have lived in and, and been transported on. They're just fascinating. The shape of them can tell us about if there are different stocks and different subpopulations in the country. Yeah, they're fascinating. <laughs> I'm an Otelet nerd. <laughs> Thanks, Ema. Ema Egan is a freshwater ecologist at Niwa. Kate Fakarongo mai kwekito tato al horihori kita reo edirangi o aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with our changing world. Now, let's catch up with what kākāpō are up to. It turns out that the giant flightless night parrots, all 147 of them, have been very busy. The kākāpō recovery team at the Department of Conservation has known for several years that the summer of 2019 was going to be a kākāpō breeding season. For the last year, the team has also known that the first breeding season since 2016 is going to be a big one, possibly the best ever. The team was also confident of their predictions that breeding would kick off in late January. But on that count at least, it turns out they were wrong. The birds had other ideas. I've been covering the kākāpō breeding season in a new RNZ podcast called The Kākāpō Files, and this is what Kākāpō Recovery Team Manager Deirdre Verko had to say in Episode 2 of the podcast back on the 22nd of December. So Christmas has come a bit early for the Kākāpō team. Obviously we're expecting Kākāpō to breed this summer and we've been quite excited about that. But we weren't really expecting an early season and we've now had the first matings. <laughs> So a female named Pearl has mated with a male named Boss um, two times over the last few nights. Yeah, it's put us in a bit of a spin, and it's a bit of a record-breaker. Pearl and Boss, the earliest kākāpō to ever mate, are on Whenuaho Codfish Island, near Stewart Island. It's one of three kākāpō islands. The others are Anchor Island in Fiordland's Dusky Sound and Hauturu Little Barrier Island in the Hauraki Gulf. The kākāpō on Anchor Island wasted no time in getting in on the mating action. They got down to business on Christmas Eve. Here's kākāpō ranger Brodie Philp from episode 4 of the kākāpō files, which went to air on the 10th of January. He had just come off a month working on Anchor Island. Yeah, we had an extremely uh, busy period. We've now had uh, 19 of our 21 breeding age females mate, and that's all been within the last two and a half weeks. Wow, that's pretty intense. Yes, very, very, very intense, very busy, but um, very exciting. The kākāpō on Whenuaho started mating a few days later, and the majority of them have now mated. Pearl, as the first kākāpō off the rank, was the first female to nest. Kākāpō are solo mums and lay usually three, sometimes four eggs. 
Here's Daryl Eason, long-time technical officer for the Kākāpō program, who knows every Kākāpō intimately, talking about where female Kākāpō nest. So it's usually in a cavity of some sort. Um, they love hollow logs or hollows under root masses, um, just natural cavities, especially rata trees and totara, um, provide good holes. Or it might sometimes just be under a dense grass tussock type thing like a garnier or just in a hole, a natural hole beside a rock or something like that. Usually good cover. The Kākāpō team keep a close eye on what the birds are up to using a range of smart technologies. They also search out every nest and put it under close surveillance. We'll put a camera in and a sensor across the entrance. So the sensor is just a a beam and a reflector um, either side of the entrance. Um, So they might have a look at that once or twice and, and then just ignore it. Gosh, they're tolerant, aren't they? They're incredibly tolerant, so we're really fortunate um, that you can really just do all sorts of work with and around them, and they are very accepting. Um, They don't like the eggs being moved to a different location. So, I mean, you can pull the eggs in and out and, and, and check them, and that's fine, but they like them to be put back where they, where they had them. So far... There are 18 kākāpō nests on Anchor Island and the team has found eight nests on Whenua Hau. Pearl, of course, was the first to nest, but unfortunately her first nest came to a sad end. A petrel, one of many seabirds also breeding on the island, entered the nest cavity and while defending her three eggs, Pearl accidentally broke one. The other two turned out to be infertile, which is unfortunately a common problem about half of all kākāpō eggs are infertile. Knowing this has given the kākāpō team confidence to take a new, bold course of action. Here's manager Deirdre Verko again. We've been discussing for a while the idea of re-nesting some of our kākāpō. With the early nesting this year, they've really handed us an opportunity to basically remove eggs from nests, shut the nest down and encourage the females to go back and make a second time and lay a second clutch. It's a pretty amazing opportunity. We have done it in the past. We've re-nested 12 kākāpō in the past and eight of them went on to mate and lay eggs again. So it's an opportunity to get more than we bargained for this year. Fantastic. And why are you going to do that? It's really around productivity and increasing growth. So we know that we can hand-rear kākāpō with no problem. So if we remove those first clutches and hand-rear the chicks, Uh, and the females do it all again, we could potentially really increase our numbers this year. I suspect one of the reasons you're doing this is because we all know that kākāpō have a problem with infertility. So more than half, is it, of eggs laid are often infertile? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the season starts with quite a lot of excitement at all these eggs being laid, but it steadily um, becomes a bit sober at times when uh, a lot of them are infertile so we're seeing the same thing again this year, uh, particularly on, on Anchor, where we know a little bit more about our egg details. We've got about a 50% or slightly less fertility rate again this year. So there are very few kākāpō, they breed so infrequently, and then we get this infertility on top of that. 
So anything we can do to increase uh, potential productivity is really worth a stab at. This bold re-nesting plan is already working. Pearl's nest was closed down after her eggs were found to be infertile. She has already mated again and she's laid her first egg in a second nest. At the moment, the Kākāpō rangers are busy finding nests and bringing fertile eggs into incubators for hand-rearing. And the Kākāpō are variously busy booming, mating and laying eggs. Now that's all we've time for this week, but from next week I'll be regularly bringing you the latest episode of the Kākāpō Files as part of our changing world. If you'd like more background and want to find out in detail what has happened so far, then check out the Kākāpō Files rnz.co.nz slash kākāpō or you can simply find all the episodes on the Our Changing World webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld Don't forget you can also subscribe to Our Changing World and to the Kākāpō Files as podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. Stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook where we are RNZ Science. Thanks for listening. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.